Live from Sydney, this is General Ike, Building Jerusalem. Our guest today is Dan Pfefferman. Dan is a fellow at the Jewish People Policy Institute and a major in the IDF Reserves. Dan, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you, it's my pleasure. You've been doing a lot of work, um, I know, in, in the past on Jewish identity in Israel, and specifically how that's shifting in, um, in like a religious context. And like I, something I've noticed, like one of the first things they told me when I got to Israel was like, oh, in America they have Orthodox conservative reform, doesn't work like that here. Is there like a, is there a, a fundamental reason for you why it doesn't work like that there? Like historically speaking or sociologically? Sure. So uh, the study that I just published, uh, the book I published on that, uh, which I'll give myself a plug, is available on, on my website, danpfefferman.com, and on the Institute's website, JPPI, um, explores that very issue. Um, historically, most Israelis were secular. Mm-hmm. Um, they were secular. They were, Israel was primarily founded by secular, maybe somewhat traditional, but secular people, mostly from Eastern Europe, um, and their Zionism was a replacement for religion. They thought that the religion was antiquated um, and it was part of why Jews were so weak. It was something that Jews had in the diaspora to hold on to their Jewish identities now that they're coming back to Israel and living in and building this new Hebrew society. They don't need that anymore. So traditionally, um, most Israelis would have called themselves secular, maybe a little traditional. Um, and what they weren't saying, and what I talk about in the book, is that they, weren't, they were secular traditional in regards to Orthodox Judaism, which was the only kind of Judaism that existed in Israel. The Orthodox at the time were uh, a smaller minority than they are today. Today, Israel is about 25% of observantly Orthodox people, if you include uh, national, religious, and uh, ultra-Orthodox people. At the time, it was far less, uh, less than 10% of Israeli Jews uh, in 1948, and certainly less before. And they were viewed, and that kind of Judaism was viewed as authentic. So there's a saying uh, that I reference a few times. Uh, traditionally, when you asked Israelis, you know, how, how do they view their Judaism? And they would say the synagogue Israelis don't attend is an Orthodox one. Hmm. And what this, what this referred to was this just kind of deep understanding in Israeli society that Judaism is Orthodox Judaism and most people uh, don't really care about it and then they can sometimes reference it when they're doing life cycle events, peak moments in their lives, uh, you know, Brit Milah and Bar Mitzvah, Bat Mitzvah, uh, weddings, funerals. Mm-hmm. And then when you do your holidays, that's a home event that has nothing to do with anything. But again, that also mostly went according to Orthodox tradition without even having to call it Orthodox because that's just what Israelis knew. The whole world of reform and conservative uh, Judaism were modern adaptations that were trying to reconcile the enlightenment of Western Europe with Judaism. So if you kind of jump to Europe, and you look at how Europe, European Christianity uh, worked with modernity, you see that in the countries that modernized faster, Western Europe and Central Europe, you see Protestantism. 
okay? And then if you go to Eastern Europe, you see uh, Orthodoxy, Orthodox Christianity. And Protestantism is a reformation of religion, whereas Orthodoxy is pretty, you know, cut and dry in that it's not. The same kind of thing happened in the Jewish world. Uh, the Jews adapted their religion to modernity. And uh, sadly, because of the Shoah, because of the Holocaust, the Jewish worlds of Western and Central Europe, which were largely reform or conservative, or what the European equivalent of conservative was, it wasn't called conservative, um, uh, died off, and whoever moved to the U.S. before that. And in the U.S., which at the time, and until recently, was the central Jewish community of the world, um, those were the major ideologies and, and denominations of Judaism. They were modern, liberal interpretations of how to be Jewish without having that be everything you do in a modern and largely non-Jewish framework. You didn't need that in Israel because Israel went in a different route. Right. So mainly, if I'm understanding correctly, the, uh, the American model was imported from Europe and uh, it was it was um, what based on coming to terms with like Jewishness in the modern world, whereas for the secular Israeli, he was like, "Oh, we're Jewish by virtue of participating in this national project." And yeah, it, it's more than that even because in Europe you still had deep-seated notions of of ethno-national identity, right? So if if you're if you're a German, right, mm -hmm. there's there's a Christian background to that Germanness that dates back. You know, 1500 years, if you're French, right? All these identities are deeply linked to an underlying Christianity that most people don't practice. Right. But it's deeply, in America, you had a whole different thing where identity was being formed from the ground up and you had a situation for the first time in Jewish history where there's no national religion, right? Mm -hmm. Even within the American case, you see uh, constantly throughout American history, church after church, denomination after denomination, uh, splitting off and forming their own niches and that. And the Jewish world in America kind of reflected that ethos. So, so that was an, uh, a really, it became, it, it was influenced by Europe, but it was really a unique American creation of Judaism that allows for uh, decentralization. They tried, they tried to form a chief rabbinate of America and a Minhag America and all these things. It didn't work. When did they try? Oh, these were probably mid 1800s. Right. Uh, the the precursor to what we call Reform Judaism today was an attempt to form a Minhag America. So interesting. Right? It, it didn't take, and then it kind of split and became ref what, what we know as Reform, and went in in that direction that that was even more radically Reform than what it's today. The Reform Judaism in America today is far more traditional leaning than what it was until the 1930s. Hmm. It's it's really interesting to hear it framed that way. I don't think I've ever heard it that way. That in, in a sense, because because America was like, hey, freedom of religion, it, was, it became a sort of wild west of religion. Yeah, when one could absolutely. Sort of do what they like. Um, is, I'm just, I just want to ask you about this thing you mentioned. You said um, uh, Protestantism is a Western European thing and, and Western Europe modernized faster. Do you see that as um, something like endemic? Because like, there's, you know, there's a huge gap between Martin Luther and like the Industrial Revolution. But is it like, is, it, is there something in the... the... The very notion that you can modernize a religion, mm. that you can play with it, that you can change it, adapt it, that it's yours to, to update, is, is a kind of a Protestant Enlightenment world concept. Interesting. You can't reform 
orthodoxy. That's literally what orthodoxy means. You that's can't that's perform in the word, it. Yeah. Um, right. Uh, you know, and so, so kind of look at the Jewish world today. Orthodoxy is is literally that we're not reforming. It does on a on a level that nobody talks about, and it takes place over much longer periods it's of glacial time. Glacial rather than rapid. But within the reform world, and to a slightly lesser extent the conservative or Masorti world, that those reforms are very conscious and made on a much faster scale in adapting to modernity and modern uh, values, etc. Um, in the Israeli case, they tried to replace that with Zionism, with nationalism, and they borrowed symbols and they tried to create sometimes their own ceremonies. And, you know, something's happening in the past probably 20 years, maybe 30 years in Israel that uh, I write about in the book and a, co a colleague of mine uh, writes about in his book um, that, you know, we see this amazing laboratory right now of, of 70 plus years of Jewish sovereignty um, where the Jewish religion and all its influences from the various four corners of the world where Jews came from and secular elements and religious elements and Hasidic elements and Sephardi elements and all these things have been kind of melding and working off each other and you have people who used to be secular who are now religious and people who used to be religious who are now secular or traditional and you add to that the element of Jewish sovereignty which has its own whole world of symbols and its whole reality and you're seeing the formation before our very eyes of a new Israeli Judaism that is <clears throat> that is really distinct from other kinds of diaspora Judaisms hmm. um, and, and where are the borders between what we call Judaism and what you call Israeli national culture could you give me like a practical example of that sure um, so we see, you know, just look at what's happening in the ground. You see that the Seder on Passover uh, is something that Jews around the world primarily do, right? 90-something, I think, if, if I, my memory serves me correct, 98% of Israeli Jews participate in a Passover Seder every year or want to, okay? That's, that's actually even bigger than I thought. How many Israeli Jews do you think keep kosher to some extent or another? Uh, um, 40%? 75%. What? If we go by a minimum of don't eat pork, which is actually a small group, to various levels of I keep kosher, but maybe not with a certificate or etc. Well. 75% keep something that we can identify as having elements of keeping sure. kosher. Right? Um, and these are things that are unique to the Jewish reality in Israel. Because if you compare it to any diaspora, certainly the American diaspora, the biggest right. one where the Jews were wholly accepted into society today, the numbers are much smaller, I think 30% maybe. Sure. Um, so uh, I'll give you another example that, that my colleague references in his book, um, riding a bike on Yom Kippur in the streets of Israel. Yeah, that's such, that's such an Israeli thing. But is it a Jewish thing? Like, it's something that coincides with the Jewish holiday of Yom Kippur. You know, Jews 2,000 years ago used to bring cows up to the temple to sacrifice on Yom Kippur. Right. Nobody ever thought of going to a synagogue to pray for all day. Right. They would fast and they would bring uh, offerings to the temple. That was Jewish. Right. Okay. At what point is, you know, what the Jews do becomes Judaism? 
It's 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 an interesting question um, yeah. because this is this is like almost that that exact phrase comes through in um, this story when I think Hill Hill the Elder comes to Jerusalem and they're like ah oh, finally we have a worthy sage it's like the whole write up in the in the Gemara finally we have a worthy sage who can solve our issues for us and he's like they ask him a series of, of, of halachic questions and we get to one it's like what do we do with sacrifices on I think it's Shabbat or Yontif like we have to um, you know how do we get the knife to the temple. And he's like, you know what? I don't know. But let's go outside and we'll see what the children of Israel do. And see what they do, exactly. And that's, and, that's, and that's, we, that's the practice. That's exactly it. And, and today, there's too much of a mindset, in the Orthodox world at least, um, of what used to be done is what we will do mm. versus this kind of looser thinking. So in Israel, you see, you know, I talked about that harsh secularism. Mm. That's dying off. That's dying off. The... Uh, uh, there's a great quote, and I, I constantly forget who said it, but the original secular Zionists said they wanted to raise a ge- they wanted to raise a society of apikosim, and they created a generation of ignoramuses. Yeah, yeah, it's a great quote. I, yeah, I have yeah. to look up who said that. Um, there's kind of, you know, there there used to be this animosity. This oh, hey, uh, let, let me just translate for anyone following along. Uh, they wanted to ge- to raise a generation of heretics, and they ended up raising. A generation of ignoramuses. Yeah. That's so great. And so you had a few generations of ignoramuses in regards to anything Jewish. Um, and there was always this kind of animosity, but also this condescension towards anything religious. Mm-hmm. And you see over the past couple of decades that that's kind of gone away. I don't want to say entirely, but I'll speak in broad brush strokes because it's easier. And... Um, it's, it's kind of gone away. You see less of an animosity. Certainly there's an animosity towards ultra-Orthodox in Israel, and, and the politics play a huge role in that, mm-hmm. and the growing self-confidence and, and just numbers of the ultra-Orthodox public in Israel contributes to that. But you also see a greater openness and interest in this vague notion of Judaism, Jewish traditions, Jewish ideas, um, something that, that we relate to postmodern societies, right? So as societies reach a level of material comfort, sorry, post-material societies, mm-hmm. as societies reach a level of material comfort, then they seek for a deeper level of meaning. Mm-hmm. And as Israel kind of got out of that adolescent stage and it's now, let's say, entering adulthood or, or maybe got out of its childhood stage and it's entering adolescence, it's searching for that society, searching for that deeper level of meaning. And you see people... Uh, more interested and less afraid to kind of re-engage with Judaism. And you see a growing level of interest in Judaism, not from an orthodox, halachic, observant perspective, not at all, but certainly from a point of traditions and understanding them and maybe engaging a little more with Jewish texts and Jewish ideas and Jewish history. Um, And and, and so you see this just general... um, movement within Israel, uh, interest within Israel, shifting within Israel to a kind of large, multi-influenced, post-Orthodox Judaism. Mm -hmm. It's post-Halachic. And what I write about in my book is that the two biggest kind of providers of leadership and framework and infrastructure are the reform and conservative movements, right? So I have a whole section in there where I say, why, do I, why did I start that study? Because you had on the one hand, 
hundreds of thousands of Israeli Jews self-identifying as reform or conservative in recent studies. And that's very new. It's new and it's also baffling because the movements themselves are incredibly small. Go to almost any reform or conservative synagogue in Israel. There's a hundred and around 140 around Israel as compared to over 16,000 Orthodox synagogues. Okay. And keep in mind, most of Israelis are still, half of Israelis are still secular and don't go to any synagogue right. really. And with the exception of a couple of the major ones in Tel Aviv and maybe Jerusalem and, and Modin and Ranana, they're empty, right? You can barely get a minion, even an egalitarian minion most of the year. Right. So how is it that the case... Double your odds and you still can't. You still can't. can't make them um, how is it the case that you have um, hundreds of thousands of Israeli Jews identifying in survey after survey as reform or conservative, and yet the movements themselves told me they combined have uh, 12 or 13,000 individual members. I'm not including children in that. Right, there's right, a huge so you gap. Got, you got a mystery here. So what I, what I concluded... Uh, is that you take into account Israeli Jewish identity of secular, certainly, and to a large extent, traditional Israelis. If you add those together, you're reaching 70% of Israelis. Okay, that's a large number. Certainly, certainly the half of Israelis who are either secular or secular somewhat traditional, that's combined, that's over half of Israelis. Israeli Jews, of course, I'm not talking about Arabs. And um, who are these people? And how do they engage with Judaism? And how do they engage with Hang tradition? On, you kind of lost me with the statistics. Sorry, go back. Yeah. Okay. We got, we've got this mystery, right? You've got like, why is it the Reform and Conservatives are saying together we've got like 12, 16,000 people in the whole Israel. But like, if you look at the census reports, you're seeing like two or 300,000 people. Even, even sometimes seven, 800,000. Wow. Depending on which survey you're looking at. Okay. But yeah, that's, so that's you a look big at the stats, Yeah. And like 50% of Israelis are secular. At the same time, Right. Not contradicting that. Okay. Different, different stat. About 60% of Israeli Jews are either secular or secular somewhat traditional. And, and those would not count into the figures for either Orthodox conservative. So or it turns or. out those identities overlap. Ah. Because if you remember what we go, what I said at the very beginning that the synagogues Israelis aren't attending is Orthodox. So now they're not attending reform schools. Also. Interesting. Which means they're not reform. Certainly not in the diaspora sense of the word. Right. What they are is they're secular or secular somewhat traditional. But when you ask them which shul they're not attending, i.e. which kind of Judaism they're now seeing as relevant, as authentic, it now includes these liberal alternatives. Oh, that's really interesting. Which never really existed in Israel because of the Israeli reality and the, the two divergent ways that Judaism and modernity work together and went in different directions, one to America, one to Israel. That's really interesting. And so this is sort of, this is a very new phenomenon. This is new. Then. This is new. It's huh. certainly new in, in that uh, our institute and, and myself and my colleague, mine, in my book, his and his book, are among the first two to kind of write about this direction. That's really interesting. Yeah. Do, you, do you have an idea or a guess as to where this is heading? It's heading to the fact that... Um, that Israeli Jews like their Jewish tradition, but they're also feeling unencumbered to mess with it and update it and adapt it to their lives. Um, but they need a synagogue to do certain things and they need a rabbi to do still certain things. Mm. Again, this is primarily life cycle events. Mm -hmm. 
right? They're not going to become observant and they're not going to become yeshiva students and they're not going to, they're not even going to become reform observant, which is a thing, right? Or conservative observant, which is certainly a thing. They're still going to be secular. It's their second, I, I, I sometimes refer to this in, in primary identity and secondary identity. Their mm-hmm. primary identity is as secular Israelis because they are not religious people. Mm-hmm. They're secular or their secular traditional Israelis. That's their primary identity. Then the second part of that identity is, you know, to which kind of Judaism are you looking at? Are you drawing from? Are you, you know, what is relevant to your life? In that sense, um, in that sense, orthodoxy has lost its grip, and now it has an, and now we've given it a name to, to something that's probably existed all along. A reform rabbi I talked to in Israel said, most secular Israelis are reformed, they just don't know it. And he's kind of right in the broader sense of the term. Sure. Yeah. So what's, when you say you've given a name to something? Uh, we've given a name to the trend. Which is? In that the majority of Israeli Jews, except for the literally people who are orthodoxly observant, I just made up a word, orthodoxly. Um, orthodoxically. Orthodoxically observant. Um, have shifted away to a post-Orthodox Judaism. It's hard to define. It's constantly changing. And it's melding with Israeliness to becoming, uh, as my colleague says it in his book, and I'll give you the information for that at the end, and you can give it to your sure. readers, because it's coming out in English soon. Um, it's becoming a unique Jewish Israeliness. Mm-hmm. And what I say about it is it's definitely post-Orthodox, post-Halachic. Is that, is that, do you feel like this is having, when you say post-Orthodox, post-Halachic, like those are, to me, what that sounds like is uh, it's an engagement with Orthodox that is then like, like, oh, we're, we're Orthodox before, but now not. It's not that, it, it's that Orthodoxy as the guidelines of what is legitimate mm. is no longer relevant. No longer relevant? No longer relevant. You mean for secular Israelis? Yeah. Okay. Is this... Is because, this... because the legitimacy... What is orthodoxy based on? Orthodoxy is based on the tenet that the Torah was given from God and you have to follow the laws. Certainly, right? And then you have a canon of work in the Mishnah, in the Gemara, and the Rishonim and the Achronim, mm-hmm. and ending with the Shulchan Aruch. That's codified it. You can't mess with it. You can adapt it to new circumstances... But you certainly can't override old ones. Sure. Right? That's basically orthodoxy. It's the word of God. If you then come from a different perspective, a post-orthodox perspective, and this is essentially where reform and to a lesser extent conservative Judaism did, and said, no, this is in our hands. We, uh, maybe it has divine inspiration. Maybe it doesn't. Maybe it does. Mm -hmm. It certainly has value. But it's something that we need to really adapt, sometimes radically adapt to every time and place. Right. Okay, so if... Um, so the, that perspective, to your mind, that, that's the post-orthodoxy, that's the post So like, like the, the German reformers in like the 17th, uh, what, 18th century, sure. they, they, they were post-halachic in that sense? Like that they started that thinking, they started that trend, yeah. Okay, interesting. Is this, is this trend having, it sounds like it's affecting the way that secular Israelis self-identify and practice a lot. Do you feel like it's having a, a substantial effect on Orthodox Jews living in Israel as well? You see it having, that's a great question. Um, but by the way, how it affects most secular and traditional Jews 
is on a ground level, on a grassroots level, they don't know how to talk about it. Because right. most people who aren't in this professional or academic sphere or who didn't go to university to learn Jewish studies or philosophy don't know how to engage in discussion Fancy about these things. sociological Jew talking. Exactly. Degrees, right? it, it affects them in, in how they practice. It affects them in what they do. It affects them in how free they feel to do certain things. So you have a movement, for example, of Jews, certainly in America and even in Israel, although it's less talked about, against circumcision. Mm-hmm. Not against the idea of a nice Jewish ceremony to welcome a new baby into this world, but against the concept of, of cutting off a, a part of your child's body. Mm-hmm. And they're coming at it from a Jewish self-conscious perspective, right? So if something like that takes hold and changes and becomes a mass thing, it's not yet. Mm-hmm. But it could in 50 years, right? That becomes a new kind of Jewish practice and it's self-conscious updating to modernity. I took kind of an extreme example. Right. Um, if people start saying that uh, kashrut is not just which animal and how you slaughter it, okay? Yeah. But it's also, did you ethically treat the animal and make it free range and hormone free and et cetera? Right. And they add that to kashrut or make that kashrut instead or I don't know, some kind of variation of that and that catches on right that's what judaism evolves and um i feel like there's a lot of like halakhically way to make that happen as well sure but if you don't care about the halakha Mm -hmm. you can still make that happen there's certainly people who consider themselves orthodox in that they care about halakha and staying within a halakhic framework who are politically liberal and conscious about those things and are trying to find ways to approach and include these kind of socially progressive issues from within a framework of halakha. So you see, uh, for example, I'll give you an example from just last week. The first openly gay, the first openly gay individual uh, who wants to be orthodox was given smicha. Hmm. And now the institution that in which he studied, which is called Yeshivat Chovevei Torah, which is a... What, often associated with open orthodoxy or a very kind of liberal progressive orthodoxy in America, in the end refused to give him smicha. It drew the boundaries, not because he was gay, but because he wanted to live an openly gay lifestyle. Um, And then in the end, a prominent American Israeli rabbi um, gave him a private smicha. Um, You know, that's one of those things where from within that kind of liberal side of orthodoxy, they're trying to wrestle with these issues and trying to do it from within a place of halacha and not just making large-scale decisions because, you know, uh, from within a reform or conservative structure, the halacha is maybe a place of reference but not necessarily a deciding factor. Mm-hmm. So you certainly see these kind of things. Uh, and again, I took an extreme example with the openly gay rabbi, but um, you, see, you see a lot of places both from within and not from within halacha where people are, are trying to adapt it and, and be more progressive and socially liberal on those issues. And this is this all of this is sort of um, feeding into that, that central thing, which is this uh, this new Israeli Judaism, which we've never seen before. Well, that, that happened to take place in America and Israel at the same time. Um, but yeah, the, the boundaries are being moved around from all sides of it. Hmm. I wanted to ask, when you said that that's happening in America at the same time, I wanted to ask you about the uh, this thing you said before off mic, which was that um, 
part of what you're working on now, you've shifted focus a bit from uh, specifically Jewish identity in Israel, and you're focusing on um, stuff that's happening with American Jewry. And something you're fascinated by is what's happening on the margins now that you think is going to become the mainstream later. Right. So I started, last time I was in the U.S., uh, giving a speaking tour on Israeli Judaism. I started talking to, to people and to rabbis, and uh, I noticed a trend. Of course, you know, uh, I'm uh, Columbus, of course, discovering America when the Indians already lived there, hmm. um, discovering a trend that had been taking place for some time already, uh, and, and it's certainly been written about to an extent, of these kind of new... Uh, exciting synagogues that are attracting a lot of people, thousands of people even. Um, and the story goes that most of the people attracted to these new synagogues are unaffiliated. So there's this kind of narrative going around the American Jewish community that some of these new exciting synagogues have figured out a way to attract the unengaged, uh, largely unidentified Jews. That's the narrative. That's a narrative, and I wanted to look into that and see what's going on. And what I started getting into is that there's also a narrative that there, that Jewish engagement, Jewish identification is going down, and, and this generation, the millennial generation, is less engaged, uh, intermarrying at higher rates than previous generations, assimilating at higher rates, and less engaged in the Jewish communal world. And so... So I wanted to get into these kinds of narratives that are floating around. And, and really, this is in almost every mainstream communal institution in the United States. This is how things are being viewed. This is the narrative. This is the paradigm. And I wanted to look at that and see what's happening. Which is the, the narrative almost everywhere is the latter, that millennials are not engaging or both? That millennials are not engaging, synagogues are failing, the denominations, i.e. reform conservative, are failing, shrinking, and that a few of these synagogues are popping up and have figured out the key to success. Okay. And, and it's not in the denominations, obviously, right? That's, so that's the narrative. So I wanted to see what this is, what's going on. And I'm finding something much broader and more interesting. And it's not that the denominations are or not failing. Um, it, it's something else. So first, I saw just in raw uh, survey data from a few major communities around the United States with sizable enough Jewish populations that when you ask not, do you belong to a synagogue? Mm. Okay, but when you ask other questions that relate to Jewish engagement, do you attend a synagogue? Do you attend Jewish-related events? Do you engage in any kind of Jewish activity? Okay, and there's a range of questions that sure. cover it. Um, you don't see any kind of drop in Jewish identification, Jewish engagement, Jewish commitment from millennials today, as opposed to older age groups. Uh, in some cases, I even saw an increase. So what are you saying? It seems to be um, that you know, a lot of the trends that social scientists in America have been, and, and it's probably very similar here in Australia, and, and if not, then it will be soon, um, a lot of trends that social scientists are discussing as regards to millennials in general and how millennials engage with society um, have spilled over into the Jewish world. There's a, a saying, uh, I'll paraphrase it, is um, the Jews tend to act like their surroundings. Um, I've, I've heard it is, the Jews are just like everyone else, <coughs> only more so. Just like everyone else, but only more so? Yeah, sure, we can, we can take that. 
So what, what are you talking about when you're talking about millennials and society, millennials and religion? You see um, a disinterest in organized religion, mm-hmm. in institutions in general, in um, things that identify you, mm-hmm. right? So you see um, more millennials today in America uh, less identify as either Democrats or Republicans and more as a political independence. Okay. You see certainly a trend towards social liberalism, progressive uh, politics and things like that. You see a trend away from uh, the denominational labels or any kind of labels in general. Not that they're not interested in religion and the things that Judaism has to offer, they are. You also see among the Jews in America that the kind of large narratives that held them in the Jewish community until recently are fading away fast. And those are two major narratives of the Holocaust and the state of Israel. And that is because those are two seminal events of the Jewish world that are fading from memory to history. Mm, this, is, this is it, right? We're, we're the last people to still have relatives who are, still, who are alive and, and remember this stuff. And, and, and they don't, today's millennials don't know an Israel that was vulnerable. They know an Israel that's strong and powerful and, and economically vibrant. So these kind of, we have to support Israel because we remember when there wasn't an Israel or we remember when there was a weak Israel, doesn't hold anymore. Everyone's thinking, yeah, Israel can take care and of itself. this sort of Judaism out of a sense of obligation because of the Holocaust is also losing its appeal and losing its appeal fast. So now you need to have a new why be Jewish. Why be Jewish because of the Holocaust is not, is not the answer anymore for a growing and a rapidly growing number of American Jews, especially millennials. And so what I seem to be noticing among across really a lot of, of uh, American Jewry, and this is of course outside of orthodoxy, because within orthodoxy, you have the halachic frameworks that are holding it together and that are pretty much stable and steady. Mm-hmm. So you now need a Judaism that can't rely on Israel or the Holocaust as its crutch. Go to any major Jewish institution for the past 50 years and it's all either Holocaust or, or uh, Israel related. Mm. That, that's not a reason to be Jewish. And they're saying, why be Jewish? And so now you're in this competition, this marketplace of ideas. Why be Jewish? And the organizations and the groups and the innovation that's succeeding in answering why be Jewish, because it provides a certain value in your life, right? Those are the ones that are succeeding with millennials. So what, what does that look like practically? Because I'm hearing just like, I'm hearing this <laughs> mystery. I'm hearing this, oh, there are some shuls that are doing really well, thousands of people. And then like... That's, that seems like, uh, I, I have no idea what's going on there. So as far as the shuls that are doing well, so it turns out, first of all, it's not just those handful of non-denominational synagogues. There's also denominational synagogues that have managed to transform themselves and become young and dynamic, and they're also doing well. Um, there's a stylistic generational issue at play here. It, it turns out, shock, shock, right? Surprise, surprise, that the same kind of style of service that was attractive to people who are now in their 60s, 70s, and 80s is not so attractive to people in their 20s and 30s. Mm. So that's one big thing. Um, And when you're in a new startup, which is what these organizations are, they're startups, then you you don't have to... It's much harder to transform the culture of an institution than it is to just start a new institution. 
if you can get the funding, it's much easier. Um, so if you can start something that's new and fresh and in tune with modern, you know, aesthetics, really, then that's much easier than taking an existing, let's say, synagogue that has members that are 80s, in their 80s, members in their 70s, members in their 60s, uh, and that's been around for 100 years and has momentum and has this kind of dynamic, and you want to try to change it to something that'll appeal to 20 and 30-year-olds, but not to the 60, 70, and 80-year-olds who are a big part of your donor base, right? So, so that's, that's just one part of it. And some of the successful synagogues, that the establishment synagogues, as it's called. Establishment synagogues. Yeah. yeah. So they're saying, okay, we'll continue doing what we do. And we'll also, let's say, hire a new young rabbi and kind of let them do their own thing on the side from within the synagogue and give them a lot of free reign and maybe have a side minion or side minions or pop-up projects in different neighborhoods. Um, a lot of it, honestly, is based on the success of Chabad uh, over the past uh, few decades. Rather than having major institutions, let's have small, intimate um, kind of neighborhood joints and, and where the success is largely based on the ability of the of the the person running it to connect with people, mm. right? Which, which is a big part of why Chabad has succeeded more than the Chabad ideology. Um, and so a lot of people are kind of looking at that and learning and saying, why build a synagogue for 2,000 people that's full two days a year when we can do these kind of small neighborhood events or kind of smaller intimate communities and synagogues? Right. Could you, could you give me an example? Because I know a lot of your work is like looking at this data and, and figuring stuff out from there. Do you have an example of a particular shul that you visited that you went, wow, this is a new type of thing? Sure. So uh, I should, you can edit this out later if you want, but uh, I don't have the budget to go around the U.S. and visit these communities. So I've been doing this all online uh, and through a lot of interviews and and uh, talking to people there and, to, and watching videos and reading about these things um, because I'm based in Israel. Sure. But um, so one of the initiatives uh, is at a synagogue in Boston where this one is actually based out of an existing synagogue but is allowed to operate fully and freely. So they have Shabbat dinners and services and a social event once a week, once every two weeks, once every three weeks, but it's always moving around. Mm-hmm. to different locations, different venues. It can be in a synagogue. They can rent out a church in a different neighborhood. Hmm. They can rent out a bar, a nightclub, a coffee shop, a bookshop, do it in a park if the weather's nice. And it's constantly moving because, let's face it, people are lazy and they don't always want to you know, travel a few neighborhoods or to a different suburb or whatever to, to, to go to where the Jewish event is taking place. But if it's in the neighborhood, they'll go. Mm. Um and it's, you know, Shabbat dinner and services uh, and nothing specially innovative or exciting about that, but it's young and it's near you and it, maybe it's in a new and exciting venue. Um, one of the initiatives is a synagogue slash community initiative in Washington, D.C., in the city. And something that's happened in Washington, D.C., which is happening in a lot of cities, is re-urbanization um, where young millennial Jews, you know, have always kind of lived in the city when they were single and then get married and move to the suburbs. So that age where they stay in the city and are not having kids used to end, like, let's say, in the mid to late 20s, and now it's in the mid to late 30s. Mm. 
And a lot of them want to stay in the city. And maybe they'll have kids, maybe they won't have kids. So the Jewish uh, community in Washington did something really interesting. They bought what was an old synagogue, and then it had turned into a church, and then was going to be torn down. And it's a beautiful structure. I've actually been to this one. And they, they reclaimed it. And they have a range of programming on an almost nightly basis, ranging from uh, various kinds of prayer services on, on Friday night, less on Saturday morning. Um, there's always an Orthodox minyan on Friday night and Saturday morning. And then the rest of the time, there's a rotating minyan. So sometimes it's egalitarian and more traditional type of prayer. And sometimes it's kind of musical with a band and musical instruments and new melodies. And sometimes it's you know, Zen and yoga and meditation, somehow davening type thing. Hmm. And uh, there's cocktail hour every week or every other week before tefillah and a dinner after tefillah. And during the week, there's a range of lectures and there's uh, Jewish study courses, intense Jewish study courses. And their success in these is they're not trying to do kiruv. Mm. They're about educating. Right. You do with the education what you want. And it's serious study. It's a it's a forty week program. They told me what. And there's a waiting list. Four zero. Four zero once a week with hundreds of people consistently on the waiting list. What we, we were to get into this. this? They said it's a university level Jewish studies, Jewish history, Jewish ideas class. This that, is also in Boston. In DC. This is in DC. Wow. There's other. There's constant lectures coming in around every Jewish holiday. There's learning um, both you know traditional text and new texts and new ideas and historic ideas, uh, in addition to completely non-Jewish culture and education that's constantly going through the venue, which is, by the way, how they fund a lot of things, by renting it out to non-Jewish type of cultural events. And what they've managed to form is a community that's not a community that speaks to the sensibilities of, of a lot of young Jews, certainly in urban spaces today. They say on a given year, they can get 50,000 individuals through their doors, a lot of them for repeat events, right? Either coming to different kinds of prayer services or to the study classes. On Yom Kippur, they have to rent out four churches in the immediate neighborhood because they have 10,000 people coming for Yom Kippur services. Is it an Orthodox place? No, it is non-denominational and it gives you the option of what kind of service you want to go to. So if you want Orthodox, there is Orthodox. And if you want... Wait, they have an Orthodox minion in these churches? The Orthodox minion, I don't think, meets on Yom Kippur. Mm -hmm. Um, I might be wrong on that, but when I went, it met in one of the levels of this building. Which was a former church. But it used to be a synagogue. It's completely a synagogue now. Okay. I'm saying on Yom Kippur, they rent churches in the neighborhood because they have such huge spillover. Right. So they're holding five different services at once. Each one has a different style because people grew up in different kind of backgrounds. So some people want a more liberal musical service and some people want a more traditional service. Some people want a more traditional egalitarian service and some people want a more traditional orthodox service. And so you have four or five different things as far as prayer happening at the same time. And then throughout the week, learning and culture and text study uh, on very serious levels, but also in kind of you know, interesting, innovative ways. And it's all about, as they explained to me, and this is, I think, the success of how you reach out to millennials, um, multiple access points 
So think, we're not, right now we're sitting in Limud, mm. which is a Jewish learning festival, mm. and which offers multiple access points in some way uh, for people if they're interested in the politics side of things, or the history side of things, or the religion side of things, right? So multiple access points is like the, the PT, P.T. Barnum slogan, like something for everyone? I guess you could say that. Um, something for everyone on a high quality level. It can't be watered down. It can't be, um, it can't be shallow. Mm-hmm. Um, and strive for longer term engagement, but there's no membership. People are paying for things. Individual. Online, mm-hmm. signing up and paying. And this is how they fund themselves rather than having any kind of membership. So it's a whole new model. Of so if you're in, it's a whole new model that doesn't exist, I think, anywhere else. So if you what you're interested, if your Judaism is going to interesting Jewish world related lectures, then that can be your Judaism and you go as you wish. If your Judaism is taking a deep, intensive academic level course on the history of Judaism and Jewish ideas, great. If your Judaism is to show up to Shabbat service once a month and have a Shabbat dinner and it you know, sometimes you want a meditation Buddhism Shabbat, and sometimes you want a kind of more traditional service, then you kind of a la carte put it together as you go. Right. And and you think that that's becoming the new mainstream, or that will become the new mainstream? All of these things, and there's a lot more things that I'm seeing, and, and you know, every community is doing it in a different way. Uh, turns out in the American experience, the regions have huge differences between them, East Coast, West Coast, Midwest. Shocker, hey? Absolutely. And, um, and that affects how the Jews... Absolutely, the Jews absolutely. Um, and the way that these different organizations and pop-up initiatives and startups are adjusting, being very mindful of how millennials are and what they want, and uh, they're the ones who are succeeding. What all of this means is that right now it's on the margins... It's very prominent, mm. but it's on the margins, and uh, it's going to influence the mainstream. Uh, in another generation, the mainstream is going to have to adapt to this whole range of phenomena that I'm seeing. Um, just like, by the way, the current, we can call it slightly out of date, synagogues in America were up to date a generation ago because they were up to date to a different trend of pop-ups and innovations that were happening that then were on the margins and became the mainstream. There's some, something that seems to happen every roughly two generations in the American Jewish experience. Like for one, like first people are like scrambling to figure out what's going on and then like they sort of haven't figured it out but then the, the goalposts shift. Right, so uh, you know, if you walk into uh, many reform synagogues today in America, you'll see kind of uh, more of an informal service, maybe a guitar or a piano or even a band. Um, if you would have walked into a Reformed synagogue in America a hundred years ago, you would have seen pews just like a church. You would have seen an organ just like a church. You would have seen uh, the clergy at the front, people sitting in the pews, a very passive uh, operatic style mm. uh, of service. And uh, by the time we hit the 70s and 80s, that didn't that go so well. And so you had all these kind of young Jews breaking off and doing new things and intimate circles and guitars and more informal and melodies and participatory. And now that's what's influenced. And what the style is now doesn't resonate with today's millennials who are breaking off and doing something new. And then that's going to circle back around and influence the mainstream in another generation or so.
And all the stuff that you're talking about, you're saying it's it's hitting mainly like non-orthodox denominations. What 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 sort of contact? I mean, is is this hitting orthodoxy at all? Is orthodoxy shifting or largely holding holding fast? How did how do you see that? A lot of this is happening outside the non-orthodox spaces. There's also been some trends within the orthodox world, but the orthodox world, at least as of now, hasn't had to scramble. Mm. to reclaim people that are leaving. Um, there are other trends. You see you see a massive rise in uh, kind of learning. Uh, Dafyomi or Chavrutas or these kind of things. Um, I, I'm interested because I feel like the, um, how stuff that, stuff that might be like, you know, surfing, surfing the wave, as it were, outside of, outside of orthodoxy. It might not be relevant to orthodoxy now, but it might be like five, ten years. Right. Look, when you start seeing a situation in which people are leaving orthodoxy, then you can start talking about that. But right, right now, that's not but a But they're phenomenon. not. One, one thing that part of this world is learning from some orthodox spaces, you know, is, is the shift away from a passive uh, service in which there's a cantor, a chazan, mm-hmm. and it's sort of operatic and performance-based to particip- participatory prayer. And I think in the orthodox world, that's always kind of been how, you know, anyone can get up and uh, it's not a solo performance. It's kind of, you know, melodies that everyone knows and everyone kind of sings together the parts that you sing together. And um, so I think, if anything, this parts of this world are influenced a little bit by the, the way the Orthodox pray. There's even one part of this world that's really on the fault line between the Orthodox and non-Orthodox world. Uh, it actually started about 20 years ago. It kind of was the beginning of this trend, and it's people who grew up on the observant side of conservative Judaism, mm-hmm. who observed, who are familiar with Orthodox prayer, minions, um, who went to Israel and saw some of these kind of lively uh, services, kind of the egalitarian minyanim type thing, and uh, they kind of wanted to emulate that to a non-Orthodox space. And you see it, you know, if you look in the uh, uh, Yeshivat Hadar and Machon mm-hmm. Hadar type world, uh, and I talked to the founder of that when I interviewed people for this research, he said he's directly trying to emulate, you know, in his, in his version, both the, the quality of prayer and also the quality of Talmudic study in a non-Orthodox space. So it's kind of, you know, if the Orthodox are doing this, uh, why can't we do this for a non-Orthodox space? So there is some of that overlap between the two. Do you have do you have like one thing that you like? Oh man, I really hope they get this right. That I hope people who read it get it right, or I hope that the people doing it get it right. The people, the people like who are in, that who are involved in this trend. Oh. I mean, the Jews of America, let's say, in a broad sense, as you watch this shift happening, you're like man, really hope this goes well. I hope all of it goes well. Uh... Amen. <laughs> <laughs> you have like a vision. Like even a, even, a, even a narrow one, like this particular section of things. I uh, truly hope that American Jews in this regard figure out how to keep things alive and getting stronger. And if it can get more American Jews or at least the same amount of American Jews involved and engaged, even to deepen their Jewish knowledge and commitment uh, that'll be great 
I think we're going to see a lot of things different in another generation or two than they are today. Um, but from a historic view, things are different now than they were a few generations ago. Mm-hmm. So that the people who are concerned about that shouldn't be concerned. Um, the questions are going to be, you know, can it remain deep? Or the concern is, is among a lot of people, will American Jews be like other American hyphenated groups, like Irish Americans whose sole connection to their Irish culture is dressing up in green on St. Patrick's mm-hmm. Day? Or, you know, if it's um, Polish Americans who get together and, and eat kielbasa once a year, um, you see too many Jews who are experiencing that kind of Judaism, matzo balls and bagels and locks once a year. And I hope that some of those who have gone in that direction can be re-engaged with and those who are engaged, even if it's changing, we shouldn't be afraid of change, but it can remain uh, uh, or it can turn into something deep and viable. Right. Dan Pfefferman, pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much. Oh,